So <clears throat> first I'd like to um, extend my appreciation for last week and uh, the book signing uh, and uh, just the joy I felt in sharing something that I think is very important <clears throat> and hoping that it finds a home uh, in your heart. <clears throat> uh, I, I really, uh, I was teaching at IMS uh, last week or sometime. I can't really remember anymore, but I recently. And uh, as the retreat was unfolding, I, my talks were around selflessness. And I told them I was a one-note Dharma teacher, which is true. And uh, I said, that one note, some of you will take it and feel very distraught and feel as if you're not doing uh, what you need to do or feel um, defenseless in the face of what you need to do or just simply feel uh, incompetent in being able to move this thing forward. Uh, I said that will be a smaller percentage, but there will be a number of you that will have that reaction. <clears throat> and then some of you will feel that there's a challenge that's being offered here, that there is a, uh, that something is being uh, pointed towards that uh, is very available to everyone, depending upon how we practice, and that with slight modifications in the way we do practice, we can move in the direction of the intended uh, fruit of Buddhism. And uh, I don't know, and I said to them, I don't know which, which component, which percentage you're in. And sure enough, I got numerous notes from the people who were distraught and often encouraging notes from those who feel it is a challenge. <clears throat> And the reason I'm bringing this up is that uh, it really, it, it feels to me to be so important uh, in our uh, time on earth that we change paradigms, that we come into a new sense of awakening, that we can't maintain and use the spiritual traditions of the past for further self-development, that they have to be seen as changing paradigms from self to selflessness. And that what we've mostly been doing over the last hundreds of years is actually using these paradigms, these uh, traditions, to uh, strengthen the paradigm we're in and to move us with some sense of self-acclaim and uh, modest arrogance towards what we think is its completion. And in fact, nothing really changes at all, except it gets embroiled in a tradition, feels arcane, and you can feel that it's just been so much has been elaborated on and commented on over the years that it's hard to dust it off and see anything new about it. But it, something radically different needs to happen. And that's what I mean by being a one-note Dharma teacher. 
is that I'm not going to be able to switch back into the old paradigm on you. And perhaps you don't want me to, but some of you probably do. And there are, and I willingly and um, uh, with great uh, appreciation recommend teachers that will strengthen that old paradigm for you and allow you to move forward in that. Uh, as, uh, because oftentimes we have to strengthen that old paradigm sufficiently to even want to change. And some of us perhaps haven't done sufficient strengthening of our sense of self before we can even look and see whether this is a self that, uh, what, what this self is that we are strengthening. So there's usefulness in the old paradigm, but ultimately it doesn't move us any closer to the uh, radical shift that's needed to carry this species uh, forward in time. <clears throat> so that's why I wrote the book. And the talk tonight is a different subject, but the same topic. And uh, I hope you'll see how these two fit together uh, because we're on the Satipatthana Sutta and the Buddha has very gently brought us to this place. He's done it over a series of passages in which he's encouraged uh, different ways of looking and seeing the body, uh, seeing it uh, in light of what it is or what we believe it to be based upon our knowledge in our memory, in our image, and seeing what it is that when we release that knowledge and image, what's there, what's left. What are, where are the boundaries when we no longer impose those conceptual boundaries upon ourselves? What does it feel like inside? What's the living experience of that? So he's taken us through that. But he, in perhaps his wisdom, uh, feels that uh, that sense of me reclaiming its position within our image is very uh, quickly reasserted. And so now he's bringing out the big guns. He uh, wanted to show us uh, in the next series of passages how the body is or can be perceived as being repulsive instead of just being delighted in, beautified, attractive in the way this culture does it, that there's also a repulsive side to it. And he uses very down-to-earth expressions to show us that. And then he says, OK, well, that's not enough. He says there's still some clinging of self to body. He says, so let's talk about uh, what my nieces say is the D word. Rodney's using the D word again, which is uh, death. <laughs> so he brings on this subject, and this is, the second, uh, this is the second talk from this topic. Uh, there'll be one final talk that concludes the whole of the body, and that'll be on the 24th when I come back. But this is really uh, the final talk on death and the body. And, and it's... Uh, what he's, he's doing, I think, is he, he's showing us a starting place. He's giving us motivation to move uh, and change paradigms. Essentially, uh, he switched paradigms very early on. He ventures out of his castle walls 
uh, with his chari charioteer, and he sees uh, a variety of different uh, dying people, ill people. He sees a monk, and he sees uh, aging people. And he, it was a time of his life when it's, it makes an imprint. There's an awakening that happens to him. And that moment in which he sees this as happening to him is his realization of death, is his absolute realization of death. That moment of realization of death may or may not have happened to you. Uh, it needs to happen before we die. Uh, because you won't take this seriously. You won't want it. Why would you want to change paradigms if the dream you're in, if the altered consciousness of your egoic state, that sense of subject and object, things being isolated from you, is working perfectly for you? But it can only work for you without any uh, confusion uh, as long as we deny the fact that there's an ending to this. Because any dream state, any state that we are conjuring up within perception that is falsely being perceived, which is what this state we're in, this par old paradigm is, has a flaw. How can a dream not have a flaw? It has a flaw. No, there are many flaws in this particular dream, but one of the most startling is that right in front of our eyes, things are arising and passing away, that they aren't lasting. And we hadn't counted on that in our dream. And so we can invest an awful lot of energy in not seeing that and denying that and just looking at the beautification of life, looking at the autumn without thinking of the winter, looking at the spring without thinking in terms of its ending, looking at ourselves in our youth without reflecting upon the aging process. But there's a flaw, and this flaw often comes rather dramatically. In fact, uh, one person, I mean a number of people I, I see, uh, tell me that they've been practicing a number of years in private conversation, and they say, you know, my sister just died, or my parents just died, or my, even my child died. And I say to myself, what's the use now in meditating? What's the point? What's the point in meditating? You see, that, not in any way to criticize that at all, but it's, a, it's, it's deeply saddening. It means that we have ridden our meditation uh, within the certainty of continuation, when all around us is the obviousness of its ending. And we don't, somehow we miss the point of it, or we just keep denying it. Meditation will allow you to deny as long as you want to deny. It doesn't break denial. We have to break denial. We have to be actually willing to see what's there. All it's doing is showing us what's there. Whether we look or not is up to us, you see. And, and like any other, like anything we do, therapy or anything, that no one can make you do it if you don't want to do it. You just shut down and it's over. You can't learn. 
unless you want to learn, you can't grow unless you want to grow. And so meditation, if it's held within the certainty of our continuation, will continue that denial. And so when something uh, uh, erupts in our life, like uh, a loss, we, whenever there's that sort of uh, eruption and distortion and um, explosion, catharsis and fear, it's usually, almost always, I think, because a defense mechanism has been broken through something that we didn't want to see that we have been very defended against has shown itself. And it shows itself with a momentum and a force that often implodes our motivation and, our, and the very reason that we're doing what we're doing. In this case, the person will say, what's the point? What's the point of meditating now that things are, that I see that things are dying? never realizing that's where the Buddha started. That's where he said, wow, there's a problem here. I see the flaw. I'm not going to pretend that there isn't a flaw. It was a directive that has lasted 2,500 years for us to look and see if we can see the flaw up close from the beginning, not 10, 15 years down the line. And when we see that flaw, suddenly a couple of we either circle the wagons and proclaim, uh, continue to proclaim our denial. That happens quite often. Uh, and we can try to manage uh, with the continuation of our certainty of living and continuation and just say, oh, it was my father and he was 85. It, it's logical that he would die, but I'm safe. We can do that, many of us do. Or you can take this flaw to heart, that it's based within the way we perceive the world. The flaw is not a flaw that we can somehow navigate around. It's inherent in the way we perceive the world. If we invest in things for our identity, for our certainty, then we can be certain that death will take its toll. There's no escape for that. And we also can learn, if we're willing, you see, we have to have the courage. You have to be of the percentage of people that want to challenge yourself forward. Not the percentage that just wants to hunker down uh, in a foxhole. And again, I'm not in any way disparaging of either side of that issue. We all have our, the optimal timing when we can come out. But at some point, you, we have to see that we are creating, we're, we are inflicting death upon ourselves. That this is a self-created flaw. Now that may be, a, that, that's a little bit, a little bit hard, so let me back up just a little bit on that. Uh, because this tradition takes its seat so firmly in what we call a Nietzsche, change, transition, flux. 
But flux was the starting point, not where you rest your laurels, not where you take your final resting place. It's the starting point. It gets you motivated to move to something that isn't changing. It, to move out of the range of experience because experience is never going to cooperate with our intentions. And therefore, just to say, oh, a Nietzsche of change, change, everything's changing, is just, it's a modification of the same paradigm we're in. It's not a change of paradigms. What change does, impermanence does, is that it flaws the paradigm we're in. So we no longer invest in the need to have that or want that paradigm as the basis for our life. We don't just rest in there and then try to accommodate change. Yes, now, you know, there, in order to change paradigms, we can't fight the paradigm we're in. So there is some, there is a way in which the alignment to a Nietzsche and impermanence, relaxing it ourselves to the change we see, ushers in this new paradigm. But most of us stay with a Nietzsche or impermanence as the direction the Buddha is meant and determined, the fruit. And it is not. It's to get us motivated so that we'll seek the fruit. Just feel it in your heart. Don't read books, including mine. <laughs> Just feel it in your heart because you, each one of us, can move this thing in the direction in which we know there's a certainty within us. And if you get too far into the literature, especially in Buddhism, you'll, just, you'll feel the cobwebs and it'll start uh, freezing your mobility. But it does. We have frozen this, these words that at one time were a delight when he spoke Hundreds of people awoke from his speaking. And now we just make reference to what he really meant and whether that's as good as, whether Jim is translating as well as Joe. I want the awakening. <laughs> let's go back and refresh this. Let's, let's find out what this awakening is about. So the, the egoic state is the altered state. The state most of us are in, that we perceive from, the state of separation. That is a misperception of reality. That is the old paradigm. That is the paradigm that cannot sustain itself into the future. Not if we have any heart here. Not if we want this species to succeed. And so when we begin to see that the altered state is the one we're in, we begin to question it. And as you begin to question it, it draws you into its flaws. Before, when we weren't questioning it, you could whitewash the whole thing and say, well, you know, the flaw happened to him, but I'm still protected. But when you're interested in 
correcting the shift of alienation that our heart has taken for generations in which we don't recognize each other in union. Then you want out. And you have to feel it as deeply as you grasped it before. It has to be proportional to the degree of your grasping before as your feeling of your urgency to leave it. And you begin to work this thing in towards its advantage so that it could move us in a way that will free us from this misperception of life. And death is an excellent subject to move it. Why is it an excellent subject? Because it freaks out our old paradigm. When you get that kind of reactivity, you know it's valuable. You know, when I'll, I'll, sometimes you can tell how true something is by how deep the reaction is against the truth by, in the other person, can't you? The amount of protest the other person is demonstrating against the truth, arguing against it, that comes because the person is seeing the truth. And because the truth is not something he or she wants to see, there's going to be enormous protest. Proportional to the amount of resistance we have to the truth will be the explosion of energy around that subject when it arises. Well, I, you know, and this is where I think I'm flawed in my teaching, is that I just go for the big apple. I don't want to just dally around and spend time looking at little things. Just give me the story, show me the mountain, give me the fact, and I'll deal with it. And so when I was in Asia, I knew I had to work with the dying. I knew that I had to put my life at risk. And literally, I meant my egoic life at risk. Because this subject, I was in such protest that I knew that I knew the signs. I knew the signs were, were clear. And I also knew that the more I invested in the avoidance of death, the more I was also investing in my individuated life. That those two things were proportional to one another. Suddenly, uh, I think uh, I remember in Christianity sitting through numbing sermons and hearing uh, the minister talk about Christ speaking about everlasting life. And I thought that was just incredible hyperbole and it's just way too grand, you know, just bring this thing down to practicality. But that's really, <laughs> when you begin to look at death and you begin to see it for what it is, you realize that death 
has an ending. It has an ending. And what is ended, where does it drop you off? It, 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 it's a dropping off place, right? You die. Things stop. And you realize that what stops is not life. It's all the forms that have been continually rising and passing away throughout life. All of the displays, all of the appearances. But life, life wasn't in those appearances. Those appearances were only held as appearances because I was seen in separative, in separative ways. So I invested life in those appearances from the way I perceived it. If I stopped perceiving it, life was total, a totality of everlasting totality. And it's just the forms that passed in and out. Well, that's meditation, really. When we sit in meditation, we are watching the forms. We just keep conceptualizing the forms down. We ratchet it down. But this is life's experience in its totality. What in microcosm of us sitting on our mat is life happening in totality. Everything is arising and passing away. Where, where, how can life be invested in those things that are just, they're like, there's no, it can't be any certainty, no guarantee. You can't invest in them. They're there one moment and they're not the next. But something else, something else, you see, which doesn't arise and pass away. And the investment in the arising and passing away keeps me very tucked in to the paradigm of my separation and its accompanying violence and conflict, right? Because if I take myself to be separate from you and there's seven billion of us on this planet, we have a lot of disturbance out there. We have a lot of annoyance, a lot of conflict, a lot of rub. Seven billion billiard balls on the same table. That's a lot of rub. But what if I was the table? and just held the rolling balls. And we think, oh, what point is there in that? See, anything from this paradigm will be negated in the other paradigm, because you can't ever experience what that other paradigm is. All you can do is weigh in as a judgment. And since we have no experience of the other paradigm, it's always a negative and defensive judgment because we're trying to defend the paradigm we're in. All of our logic, all of our strategies, everything goes towards the protection with, of the altered consciousness that we are now in. So the Buddha throws this right at you. He says, death. And he just lets it drop 
the realization of it, going to the charnel grounds, as he puts it, beginning to see the decomposition as we are alive. It's like I'm on the Titanic. Do I want to go down with this ship? Is there some other place? Can I be the ocean? So I want to talk tonight, <clears throat> skipping many pages in between. <laughs> what can I do? I want to talk about the transformation that we go through as we march this thing through the realization of death. It's a transformative process. It changes us. It changes us remarkably. And I know the subject well. My first book was on the topic. But I think we need to get a sense of its pathway because it will throw you off the horse immediately if there's no preparation. And so, there are a, sphere, a series of phases of growth experiences when this topic is addressed. Those phases can be thought of more as a circular staircase rather than a linear changing, going from one phase one to phase two to phase three. You'll go to phase one and you'll be often within that phase, it'll change many times, uh, and then there'll be patterns and in coming into phase two, and yet the phase three will also be there. So as we begin to speak about this, don't think them as so much a linear set of direction as a kind of spiral staircase that takes you out of each phase as it ascends upward. When we take the subject on, when the realization happens, when the Buddha throws this word at us, there is the stage one I call the stage of self-preservation. The ego, and you can look at it from the altered state we're in, the flaw, right? Remember that the protest within the flaw is proportional to the, to the uh, energy of defensiveness. So when we take this thing on and we're willing to take it on and we, when I first visited <laughs> the home of someone who was dying, I was, uh, I went down to Houston and I was uh, interviewing for a job down there, which I eventually got, but it, to see whether I was fit, which is a good thing, they took me out to, to a, home with someone who was dying. It was not pretty, and they just wanted to see what, whether I could hold myself within that situation. So I, there were every cell in my body wanted to leave. And yet there is, at the same time, and it's hard to talk about, but I also knew it was absolutely the place I needed to be. I mean, if you tell me about an injury you've had, I will, I will like, my body will go up and I, I'm that way. So when you see somebody dying in front of you, you know, with open wounds and all, I'm just like, but I stay the course on it. 
So this stage of self-preservation, egoically, is a contraction. The ego is contracting, like it's circling the wagons with such strength. It's protesting with such exclaim. It's, it's, the mind is trying to protect its own creation, which is itself. And it doesn't know how to do that except by creating a fear response to what it's seeing and hoping that you'll turn away from it sufficiently so it can go back to what it calls normal. And so out it comes. And it really is just uh, something that you got to see. <laughs> so, but again, in the right timing, in the readiness of the person to expose oneself to this subject, and people do it for a lot of different reasons, I was doing it because I wanted to understand it, then you allow the flipping out, you don't try to do anything to it, you know, you think sometimes you might be going crazy because it's just, it can't stand the thought of living with this reality. It's like, this is untenable. I have to, I have to leave the earth. It's the person that comes to me and says, what's the point? It takes you to that point. What's the point? Now, many people, when they get that degree of fear and contraction, they move to a belief system. Because the belief system says, I can't deny the fact that death is going to happen, but I'll have continuation of life after it happens, and so I'll project a heaven. I'll project a whatever it is. And so heaven is a way for us to continue without having to die once death has occurred. So it's a protection from that egoic flip out. Let's just look at it, right? Just see if this is true or not. That's why I have systematically sustained from any learning about the bardo states because that's the Buddhist form of continuation. I want to know whether I'm up for the ending, not for the continue. I've already continued. I've been continuing all the, all, I want to know what it, okay, don't put anything next to that moment. Now, what, now what's that like? You feel some anxiety? Okay, so this sense of self-preservation, if, um, if you have enough courage, sincerity is another word, not white-knuckling, it's just, you know, this is a flaw. And you, I don't know what the, the Buddha was feeling when he walked out of his castle and saw these things, but that is in all of us. Whatever he was feeling is also in you and I. And when that arises in you, it doesn't matter what the mind is doing or how the ego is strangling your life in that moment. It's okay. And so if there is the willingness to steady one's gait and posture through this, and this phase will circle back around in the circling staircase over and over again. Don't think you're going to get out of it by one, having one 
catharsis. This is an, if whenever you sink back, whenever we sink back into the altered consciousness, that the first thing that's going to happen is fear. That's, the, that's how the ego gets us in within its control. So it's going to be a staircase for most of us. Okay, so then with some steadiness through that, not by trying to get over it, but just it starts, the, the, the ramparts start falling apart. They just don't, you just, you just, see this is just over time a little bit and it just starts get waning, the fear response. Just by keeping, staying steady in the subject, it starts, okay, so then the next phase is universal death, the phase of universal death. And the phase of universal death is a very interesting one because this also, by the way, accompanies one's meditation, whether you're focused on death or dying per se or not. Whenever you are facing yourself and what you really are, these same phases go right on through. So the next phase, it's also the phase of going from self to selflessness. So you're not going to say, well, I'll get out of those phases by just changing subjects. If you take anything to its emptiness, these phases await you. <laughs> it's better to do it while you're joined in a group. You know, I don't want to be out in Arizona alone somewhere on the desert doing it. It's just, that's what Sangha does, is it provides companion for these phases. That's what the interdisciplinary team of a hospice is. It's like, we're all in this together. You know, the dark, it's dark out there. Let's all be in this together. Anyway, the, the second phase is the phase of universal death. The phase of universal death is when you've relaxed to the subject sufficiently that you see it everywhere. That there's no place it hides. There's no place that it is without. Now, the, this is also an egoic stage because the ego, the ego is making something very central to its theme of life. It's very important. When I was cast in this phase, it was like, this is the most important thing. You don't understand. I'd be on the phone with some. You don't understand how important looking at death is. <laughs> Nobody ever called me. And I was like, oh, you know, and if the patient didn't want to talk about death and dying, I did, you know, I said, <laughs> don't you, you know, you're on a bad voyage to a mystery here, let's go. <laughs> anyway, I learned very quickly that that wasn't how you handle it. <laughs> but it's in you, you know, the excitement and, and because the ego is blowing it out of proportion, blowing it out of proportion. You see, it's another moment in time. But when it becomes the moment, something is making, seeing it, and still reacting to it. But there's a value to this universal because you really begin to bring in the subject into a realization mode. You begin to let it touch the cells of our body. We begin to actually feel the impact of, the, of its certainty not as a philosophy, not as something that's going to happen, but as something, my God, you, it's like an, oh, whoa, 
So um, awareness uh, starts moving beyond its mental confinement. It's been, it was confined as a protection before, and now it's starting to move out in, in, in the form of acknowledgement of, of the universality of death. So you can feel the widening expanse of awareness, and at the same time, your heart, our hearts, also expand outward, and you start feeling the impact of pain at every level uh, as you begin to view it, or are willing to view things that you, up until this point, have defended yourself against. I hope that sounds familiar to everyone in their meditation practice, because hopefully you're all experiencing that. Again, it doesn't have to be through the subject of death and dying. And so then, you know, we start moving out, and when you realize everything is dying and the ego settles down with that fact, then we move into the next phase. Again, these phases are of multiple durations. You know, you may be stuck in phase two for your entire life. I don't know. I don't know. Um, is the phase of letting be. This, now we're no longer trying to fight this thing, but we're seeing it as part of, as an intricate expression of. That the willing, the need to fight it is gone at this phase. Uh, there's no need to fixate on it either. It's just, and hospice, the way it's stated, although few people really have realized that level, is that death is a part of life, completely. Just a complete part of life. That it's never an emergency. There may be urgency in relationship to someone dying, but it's never an emergency because it's expected. And so too is ours. And the accompanying that is also the realization that there isn't anything worth holding on to because it's all dying through that universality of death has imparted the wisdom of the letting be, letting life be, not releasing, not throwing it away, not turning our back on it. It's just letting it be now. Just beginning to, you can feel yourself starting to fold into the mix rather than being outside in our protective cocoon. As this thing widens, as we allow ourselves to relax, we come into the mix of it. We come into the life and death moment of it. And that letting be still has an egoic presence. There's still a, a, a sense of, of um, fear and hope uh, in there that plays forth uh, in time. There is um, less fear of time, uh, which is why I read the poem tonight. There's less, uh, uh, there's more of an abiding, even if you're in a traffic jam, you need to be somewhere, you are where you need to be. I don't know how to say it so that you don't, up until that point, we were never where we needed to be. And most of our life is defined not by where we are, but where we need to be. And suddenly, you don't need to be anywhere. And that's what I mean by time loosening its hold on us. It just, where's life happening? It just doesn't make any sense anymore to keep configuring ourselves out of any coordinate other than what is present. 
I, uh, there's a story I love. Uh, there's a story of um, an Alzheimer's patient who had uh, Alzheimer's disease for t the last 12 years of his life. Uh, he had uh, he was st staying with uh, he had his wife of some 60 some years, and uh, some uh, his grown children were visiting his house at the time. Two grown sons, and uh, he was watching television with his grown sons. His wife was in the kitchen, and he has a heart attack, and he drops over. And <clears throat> one, a son goes to his side, rolls him over. The other son says, I'll go find mother. No, I'll call the ambulance. That's what he says. I'll go, I'm going to call the ambulance. And the man, with clarity that had not been heard by his sons for 10, 12 years, says to the son who is going to go off and call the ambulance, no, don't call the ambulance. Go Go tell your mother I love her. And then he dies. That's where you need to be, right? That's where this species needs to be. We can't keep doing this, people. So, I'm moving rather fast through these. Each one of these could be a series of talks in themselves. But I want to take us to the last phase. I want us to understand the final resolution to see how death and selflessness are actually one and the same. Because the next phase, because when one begins to feel the less, the less pressures of time, when one begins to feel the universality of one's condition, when one's heart begins to open beyond the contracted and concentric way that it has been held, when it begins to loosen the awareness strings, the, the drawstrings of where awareness has been, when it begins to flood humanity and there is still this commentator that follows that opening. Then one turns to the final death. Who am I? What is this? Who dies? What is death? These are all perceptions of the same question, of the same investigation, of the same energy of the heart that uproots its final identification. What is this thing? For with that very subtle identification that remains for many of us, perhaps for our whole duration of practice, that's the thing that can still die. 
That's where the worry still lies. That's where the deaths can still create the fear. That's the part that hasn't been fully realized so that it has no more boundaries. And the heart turns to this. The heart then turns to this final question with a pause. and moves ahead. Calming the seas for the first time. Changing paradigms for the first time. So may it happen to all. Can we sit for a minute or two? to give ourselves the intention, not a thrashing. It doesn't, awareness doesn't need your bullying. It needs your inclination. that the mysteries of life will open to us. That we will live the mysteries. That we will know ourselves for the first time. So we have just a few moments for questions, if there are any. Any way that you might wish to have further elaboration or insight into any part of the talk this evening? Right, the death is not an emergency and the time to let go. There's another really nice story uh, that I, I think gets that point. And that is a, um, a teacher friend of mine, I won't use his name, although I don't think he would mind if I did, he was with his dying mother. <clears throat> and 
he was holding her hand and he was giving her a dharma wrap. He, she was very close to death and he was, <laughs> he was telling her about the value of letting go and how wonderful it'll be, you know. And as he was speaking, uh, she was squeezing his hand tighter and tighter. <laughs> so being, uh, being somewhat aware to that pressure and what it meant inside her that she was getting more fearful, he stopped it. He paused and he said, Mother, I love you. And her, re her grasp released the tension. And she died with that. So it's, letting go is not um, a drill we go. It comes from understanding. It comes from the understanding of how the self forms itself around grasping. It comes from understanding the limitations of grasping. It comes from the understanding of the limitations of the forms we're grasping upon. It comes from the understanding that of how we create an alternative reality in time through those grasping and desires and fears that we create. Until all of that is understood, there cannot be any letting be. Because then it's a pretension of letting be. It's like, because we're still in the mix of things and we're just trying to keep our, raising our hands uh, in protest. And so letting go to all of us, to most of us, is a sense of self-control, not of ease. When death is no longer an emergency, when it fits into the circumstances of all other things, there's at ease. The fear of not being separate is connected to the fear of death. Yes, that's what I say, that it's self-inflicted. We want to be separate, but, and we don't want death, but we want to carry ourselves along with, within the process so that we can be separate and not have death be a problem. We want to fix the flaw. You know, the engine isn't working real well. We want to keep the same vehicle, and we want to stay in the vehicle driving, and we want to fix the flaw. Right? So we want our separation and we don't want death. But those two are, those two are actually the same thing. So you don't get one without the other. So which one drives you further? You see, the, the hope, the longing, the grasping for one, or the interest uh, in the flaw so that, what is going on here? You know, why does this thing keep coming around? It's like a, a stone in your shoe. It's like, <laughs> the, I'm walking the yellow brick road. There's Emerald City ahead. There's, you know, poppies on either side. I've got this stone in my shoe. And it just makes traveling horrendous. And even though it's beautiful, it's just, okay, I've got to look at the stone. So we stop, we pause. The end of separation is not something 
do it gently. Just start looking. Do it through love. We love ourselves out of existence. So that's why there's so much emphasis, and rightly so, in Christianity on the heart, and also, I think, a growing sense of that in Buddhism, where the heart, you see, a big heart, small me. Big me, small heart. So if I pump this up, this goes down. And I like it this way. It feels good. It feels connected. It feels interconnected. And this thing is, is beginning to have less and less weight upon my judgment and my contentiousness and everything. So we just walk it that way. There will become a time when you have to look directly at what remains. But let's walk it in a way that uh, uh, allures us rather than a way that scares us. And the way of the heart is way for many people. My own direction, I, I say that there's two main directions you can take. Wisdom, the way of wisdom, or the way of the heart. Mine was the way of wisdom. I, I just wanted to know what was there and as a, the obstacles to it and just deal with it. But for most people, I think, especially with the Christian background, the heart has a, a, a concomitant parallel path that, is, uh, that uh, moves us in that direction. And ultimately, you have to deal with the same issues, of course, but it lines up in a way that makes, it feels like it's the safe, a safest route to go. Shall we call it a night? Good. Thank you all. Thank you all very much. So we have some announcements. So everybody would just hold their place. Uh, so let me, uh, as the announcements are coming up, if you're new to Seattle Insight and haven't done the beginning course, this meeting is not for people who just come off the street. It's for people who've had the background of how to meditate from a reputable teacher, either through the classes that we teach here at Seattle Insight or through another reputable teacher's uh, instructions. But so that when you come here, and you can also practice Zen, you don't have to have been uh, just in the Vipassana tradition, but when you come here, you already know how to practice. You already know how to basically use your mind and its feedback to give you the awareness of what's going on inside of you. That's the meditation. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you probably need to go through the beginning series. <laughs> because you need that all the way in this. I just assume that's there. But some of your faces I haven't seen before, so I just want to put that out. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.